Oh my goodness, you crazy son of a bitch. Do you have any idea what you've just done? You've just discovered the Marks and Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. This is the show that may or may not be an hour long based on your perception of time and how much I've got to say. So strap yourselves in and prepare your ears for the journey of a lifetime with your host of the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour, me, you idiot. Welcome, everybody, to the Martin Lestrap Show Podcast Hour. My name is Martin Lestraps, and this is episode number 214. I've got a fun one for you today. I recently had the opportunity to be a guest on Friends and Friends, which is an informative, edgy, and entertaining podcast hosted by Jay Franz. On each episode, Jay talks with leaders from all industries, picking their brains about the specific expertise they have to offer. So with that in mind, Jay invited me onto the show to share my expertise on writing and publishing. And I had a blast. Jay and his co-host, Keith Sensing, are both really cool, really fun guys to talk to. And along with writing and publishing, I also talked about horror movies from the 1980s, the inspiration for Daddy Marlowe's Boys and my novel Inside the Outside, and the first time I made a move on my future wife and occasional co-host, Chanel Chaco. So, without any further ado, here is my appearance on Friends and Friends with Jay Franz and Keith Sensing. Martin Lestraps, how are you, buddy? Howdy, fellas. How you doing? Doing well. Not Good to see all. you, Mr. Martin. It's fantastic to see you both. Excellent. Thank you, sir. We just showed everybody your book, and we watched the trailer. Very exciting. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Nice. A um, lot of awards. It, it, it's, it's won a few awards. I'm actually um, uh, very grateful, very proud, but also a little bit... Uh, a little bit baffled because so so Dolph the Unicorn Killer. It's it's uh, it's my fifth book. It's a short story collection, and I'm very proud of it. But it's also a book that I had I had no intention of writing. It it came about very much by accident. So uh, a lot of the success that's followed the book. It's it was a, a bestseller on Amazon. I think it got to number number two, number three on Amazon. Um, it's been uh, it's been uh, very well received by by you know critics and uh, readers and as you mentioned uh, you know generously it's won some awards so all these good things that have happened I'm very proud of all of it but there's also a part of me that that feels like this is strange because this was not a book that was supposed to exist so um, did you just wake up one morning and, and hit yourself on the head and bam <clears throat> I have a book that's how it happens yeah. <laughs> so, so, so so it didn't happen just like that so basically uh, I was working on what was supposed to be my fifth book. Uh, it's going to be another novel, and uh, I, I based I, somewhere along the way I'd lost my mojo. I was, I was sort of in, I was in the middle of Rocky Three, where uh, Clever Lang had beat me for the title, and um, uh, Mick had died, and uh, and, and I, cu I couldn't get it back together. And so I needed Apollo Creed to come in and uh, take me to some you know urban city and give me the Eye of the Tiger, except I didn't have all those guys in my corner. But I sort of lost my mojo, and um, I wasn't really the, the the book I was working on. Uh, I wasn't exactly sure where it was going, and I and I realized I wasn't really enjoying the process anymore because at that point I, you know, I'd done four books, and I was I, I realized I was working very much on just sort of like I don't know momentum and grit, and I just I got this momentum of you know 
putting out books, writing, publishing, um, particularly after my first book, which was, uh, it's called Inside the Outside. It was, because it was my first book, I had no expectations of it. And because it was more successful than I was expecting it to be, I really felt like I, I, I had to capitalize on that for as long as I could. And it got to a point where I was just so so much in the grind that I wasn't enjoying it anymore. So I kind of lost my mojo. So I figured, let me let me put this book aside for a little while, and uh, and you know I'll, I'll wait. I don't know what I was waiting for. I'll, I'll wait for some feeling to come back, then I'll get back to work on it. That feeling wasn't really coming. So so after about five six months, I hadn't written, and I decided, okay, I need my I need my 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 Rocky Three Eye of the Tiger moment. So I decided, you know what what. What was it that I loved about writing? What, what got me excited about writing in the first place? And it was when I was in college and I was taking creative writing workshops and I was writing short stories. That, that was the, the very beginning for me where I fell in love with writing, was writing short stories. So I started writing a short story, but just, just for the purpose of doing an exercise, just, just, to, just to get back into the groove. And I wrote a short story and, um, uh, and I liked it and it was fun. So I thought, well, yeah, let me, let me write another story. But I never had the intention of putting a collection together. I was genuinely just trying to get my mojo back. Uh, and then at some point, you know, I had, a, I had a collection of stories, including the the title story, Dolph the Unicorn Killer. By the time I wrote Dolph, I at that point I had a I had a feeling like, okay, this might be worth putting out for public consumption. But even once the book was done, like with with my previous books, especially my so after my first book, I did a vampire trilogy. Those books, I did a, a lot of uh, marketing and promotion, um, a lot of legwork ahead of time. With Dolph, um, I, I just I just put it out in the world. I, yeah, it, it was a book again. It, I, I never I hadn't planned on writing it. Now it existed, so I put it out into the world. Um, and so all the success that, that came with it, it's it's extremely gratifying. But also, um, was, because it wasn't pl- in fact because it wasn't planned, is it probably more gratifying really? Wow. No, that's pretty cool. You mentioned, and I get hung up on the Rocky references too. It's not about how hard you get hit. It's, you know, get up. Yeah. And, all right. So um, let's, what made you start writing in the first place before we even got to school? Did you have that passion? Was that something you were interested in then? Uh, yeah, but it, but it came relatively late. So I was about, um, uh, I, I was about 18 years old when I, when I really sort of something clicked in my head that this was something that I wanted to do up, up until then for most of my life, particularly as a kid, I was always very creative. Um, I loved, I loved art. I loved drawing. So specifically I loved, uh, I loved comic books. And so I was always drawing superheroes, either mimicking my favorite superheroes or trying to create superheroes. Um, and so I always kind of imagined that that would be the, the, the course my life would take, that I wanted to be an artist. That's, you know, that's all I loved doing. Um, I was always a, a kid in school when the teacher was talking, I was drawing, and then they would take away what I was drawing because I wasn't listening. Right. And so I when I was, same things. <laughs> so I, I believe I was, a, I was a senior in high school. I think it was maybe like my, my first week of senior year. And, uh, and so my godfather, he, he just by, by pure happenstance, he met, uh, somebody who worked at Hanna-Barbera. So he got me a tour at the Hanna-Barbera studios because he knew that I, that I wanted to be an artist. And he took me to this Hanna-Barbera studios to take a tour. And, and it was cool. But particularly when I got to the portion where I was meeting different writers, um, you know, cartoonists, I said writers, cartoonists, um, uh, every cartoonist that I met, my, it, my memory of it is they were by themselves in a re- relatively dark room. Every one of them looked miserable. And... Um, 
every one of them that uh, got to look at me and realize I was on a tour, they didn't tell me not to do it. But the look on their face was, you know, this kind of sucks, kid. And uh, <laughs> so, so that stuck in my head. But I was, I was also very aware of my, my limitations as, as an artist. And so I was, you know, I, I was one of those artists where amongst my group of friends, amongst my general family, um, everybody thought, they thought I was terrific. But, but, I, but I knew in my heart that my ceiling wasn't high enough to, 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 to try to make a living at it. So when I, when I got into college, I, I got into college and I, I knew that I wasn't going to do art anymore just because I was very, I don't know, just pragmatic. And I didn't want to lose time on an endeavor that I didn't feel like I could reasonably do. So I was kind of wide open. And then um, my, my first semester in college, I got very lucky. I took an English class. It was just, it was just, you know, basically English 101. Uh, the professor, her name is S.K. Murphy, and I, and I remember her name because she's still a friend of mine to this day. But I, I wrote an essay for her, and, uh, and, I, and yeah, I was I was a I wasn't a good student. I was like a C, you know, B minus C student, you know. Um, and so when I when I went to, I went to community college primarily because uh, I, I I didn't apply to any universities. I didn't uh, take the SATs. I didn't know I didn't know how to do anything. So I went to community college because they had to let me in. So that was important. I <laughs> uh, signed up for this class, wrote this, wrote an essay for this teacher, and she loved it. She loved the essay. Uh, she loved it so much. She read it to the class, which was this amazing experience. I never had that before. And then wrote just one of these, one of those nice teacher notes that she probably didn't think twice about. And it was just, you know, hey, you're pretty good at this. You should think about being a writer. Little did she know up to that point, I was clueless. I'd given up on the, on my dream of being an artist. So the fact that I might be good at something and I enjoyed it set me off on a path and, and, and even then, you know, I, I didn't necessarily know or imagine I'd become a novelist, but that was like the first idea. I was 18 years old, the first spark that, uh, but the writing might, might be my future. So that was your influence. Absolutely. So how did it turn from just writing short stories and stuff into horror? So because before we start there, let me just point out for those who cannot see the video right now or listening on the audio, Martin looks like a villain. <laughs> he has got the perfect look. I, I can't describe it um, any better than that. I mean, you're making my has, day. Keep going. The, the, yeah, I'll tell you. The, I'm, I'm bald, but he ca he <laughs> carries off being bald. He's got a beard. I have a beard. His beard is awesome. Comes down to that point. It has that villain look. So I can. It, he looks like he should be writing horror stories. <laughs> oh, so, sorry. Go ahead. No, 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 no. I, I appreciate that. So, so, so the horror. I, I, I don't mean for this to become a theme, but that almost happened by accident as well. Um, so I was, so, so my first book, it, it's a horror novel, but I, I didn't know it was a horror novel right away, which is silly because it, it's about a cult of cannibals in the San Bernardino mountains. Um, who, it's, you know, I, yeah. And, and, you know, and it's, and it's very violent <laughs> and bloody. It has all the elements of horror, except I, I thought I was writing just like, you know, just like a just like a, a nice literary novel that would be, you know, whatever that the, that the Pulitzer Prize Committee could one day consider. Um, and ironically, it wasn't until uh, S.K. Murphy, the professor I mentioned, you know, years later, she read an early draft of it. And she, she literally had to tell me that this was a horror novel. Up to that point, it didn't occur to me that cannibals and violence and, you know, uh, bloody murder was, was horror. But that said... Uh, as a kid, I was 
enamored with with horror movies. I absolutely loved them. Particularly, like I grew up uh, in the '80s, so that was a that was a nice sweet spot for for those boogeyman horror movies with the Freddy, and Jason, and Michael yep. Myers. So I, I love that stuff. Um, <laughs> Then, then you know, then then I matured and, and discovered you know uh, Hellraiser. I accidentally, by the way, not to digress too much, but I accidentally discovered Faces of Death. If you guys remember that series, um, and so Faces of Death, which of course before the internet sounds like Keith remembers, this was a collection of videos, uh, you know, videos of people who who died or were killed oh, on camera, I but you know. Now. You know, and and so at the video store, I'd go to the video store, and yeah, I would. Yeah, I just looked at the covers. If it looked cool, I wanted to rent it. Faces of Death looked cool. I guess I didn't. I I clearly didn't read the back of the box. So the first couple of deaths, I was thinking, wow, this is a. This is this is this this is shocking. This they really went all out to make this look genuine. And then uh, then once I realized what I was watching, I was horrified, and I didn't want to watch anymore. I like the fake violence. Uh, I didn't enjoy that very much. But so that's it. I I I love that stuff. So I had it. I had it in my. It it was in it was in my blood that I I enjoyed that. So so writing it's it it kind of makes sense that I might accidentally write a horror novel because I like that stuff anyway. Um. And actually, as I think about it, so technically, uh, the first book I wrote, it's it's one of those uh, unpublished books that go, went to the bottom drawer, uh, didn't do anything with it. Um, that book was not a horror novel. Um, but when I finished it, um, I, I tried to get it published. I couldn't find anybody uh, that was interested in it. And I was, um, so I, eventually after about a year, year and a half, I gave up trying to get it published. And I was I was feeling a little bit cynical about, you know, that they didn't want my my sweet novel, whatever it was about. So I thought, okay, maybe, maybe if I write something a little bit more, I don't know, dramatic, edgy. Um, and so that kind of took me in the direction of, of this uh, horror novel, again, the one about cannibals. It's called Inside the Outside. Um, and so, uh, so so the cannibal thing, it came about when I, again, I was in college. I took a class that I, I think of it as the, uh, as the vegetarian class because it was a class that where the, the teacher sort of inadvertently or otherwise introduced me to literature and videos that by the, by the end of the semester, I, I was, I, you know, I, I had to become a vegetarian. And so, so that was in my head when I, when I started this cannibal novel, cause I also was very in love with the allegories. I, I like, I liked the idea of writing a story that was about one thing, but sort of, you know, was represented by, by something else. So I thought, okay, what if I write a book about cannibals, but maybe I could sort of, you know, have whatever, some vegetarian ideas. Um, Ultimately, there was no interesting vegetarian ideas, but I kept the cannibal part. And then, uh, <laughs> so a vegetarian writing about cannibalism. Absolutely, and in the cannibal stuff, it's uh, it's, it's very hungry. it's just very graphic and it's very detailed. In fact, I even I even went so far as to do uh, as much research as I could on like you know like supermarket delis and stuff because I really wanted to make sure because these are civilized cannibals. I should make that clear. These, these aren't your. Uh, you know, this isn't like the, the hills have eyes or anything. These are civilized cannibals. They they have a they have a commune up in the San Bernardino Mountains. Um, they have a you know they 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 uh, you know they have a what 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 did I call it like a daily learning where they they educate the kids. I mean you know it's all fake news. They lie to the kids, but you know they educate them. They've got basically a, a, a sustenance dwelling where you know they where they chop up the bodies. Uh, they have a sacrifice that they do you know once or twice a month. They. They they sacrifice somebody amongst amongst the commune, um, but no no nobody thinks to ask you know if we're eating each other how come we never run out of food, 
Um, no spoilers, but uh, but it turned out that there's a, there's a very sinister reason as to how they how they get their bodies. Soil green. <laughs> wow. Why Sam? By the way, if I didn't answer your question, I apologize. I, oh, I lost track somewhere along the way. Why San Bernardino Mountains? Uh, so, uh, well, uh, two reasons. One, so I grew up in the Inland Empire, which is basically in San Bernardino County. Uh, I grew up in the foothills of the San Bernardino Mountains. And so I, you know, my whole life, I, you know, there's literally just mountains for my backdrop. It was normal. So I didn't, I didn't really realize that everybody didn't have, you know, mountains as their backdrop. So, so I, in that way, it felt natural. Um, but also, uh, particularly with the with this book and and really with all of my books up to this point, um, I I really liked the idea of of, of representing my you know, where I grew up. If, if not my immediate hometown, which which is it, which is represented in, in the book, I do write specifically about my hometown, but also my my you know the the surrounding cities um, in large part because when I was a kid uh, growing up in the Inland Empire, I grew up in a city called Rancho Cucamonga, and I was, I, I, I had this, I grew up, basically I felt like I grew, I, I lived in an invisible city because I watched TV, I watched movies, I read comic books, uh, and in, in any form of media, uh, my city was never acknowledged. And, and, and it kind of, it made me feel very invisible. I, I wanted to see, I just, just a mention of it. The closest mention I ever got was, was Bugs Bunny, uh, you know, talking about taking the train all the way to Cucamonga. But even then as a kid, I didn't realize he was talking about my, my city. So I, I couldn't appreciate it too much. And I guess technically that was Jack Benny. Keith could probably correct me on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, the, I, the idea was basically, I just, if no one else was going to do it, I wanted to see my, my, my city represented somewhere. So I decided to set my city or set my story there. Nice. Very I'm from Boston. So I don't typically run into that, those same challenges. Everybody talks about Boston films, movies, <laughs> does all that stuff, but I live in yes, just outside of San Francisco now. And you mentioned the mountains. I'm surrounded by them. But they are stuff like, or mountains like I've never seen before. There's no trees. They're all brown. You know, they're brown for <laughs> 90% of the year. Mm-hmm. And it's just a complete, completely different environment than what I'm used to. I, I, I bet. Where, where there, do you have trees in Boston? Is that a thing out there? They, they have trees. And, it, and things are huh. green. You know, they're green okay. for most, most of the year. Okay, I got to go back and watch Goodwill Hunting just just to make sure they got it right. You know what? That has become one of my favorite movies, and not because it's from Boston. I just for whatever reason, I like that movie. Oh, I adore that movie. I saw when I I saw it maybe four or five times in the theater. And by the way, I was in college. I had no money, so to watch a movie four or five times was was not a small thing. I, that was one of my. If you twist my arm, I'd say that's one of my top threes. I absolutely love it. My wife gets mad at me because I, I continue to watch it over and over. Oh, we'll do a nice Zoom call together. Watch it. There you we'll go. Record our, record our comments about how much we love it. Nice. How do you like them apples? <laughs> I got a number. I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. Hey guys, hey guys, so wh- where did it go from there? Uh, remind me where I left off. I apologize. I don't something know. You said something about writing a book. Numbers. Oh, perfect. All right. Cannibals. So, <laughs> Mountains. San Bernardino Mountains. <laughs> San Bernardino Mountains. So I wanted to see my, my hometown uh, you know, represented in the book. And uh, so, so there, there was a few. There was a few things that converged into that first book, Inside the Outside. So, so part of it was I wanted to write about my hometown. Uh, so I, so I did that, um, uh, writing about very specific uh, streets and parts of the city and schools. Um, 
And and, and one, one, of the, one of the joys of it is when uh, when I hear from people who either I knew or even more than that, people who I don't know who live in who live in that area who've read the book, who are who are thrilled by by seeing the, the the city and just the overall you know area of the Inland Empire and San Bernardino Mountains and, and San Bernardino County represented, you know they love it and that makes me really really happy. I also a few years ago I met, I met this very nice lady. I was doing a, a book reading at a bookstore uh, in uh, in Hemet, California, and um, she was asking me about the, about the mountains where you know where where the cult was set, uh, you know, where their commune was set up. She wanted to know you know like specifically where where it was set up, and um, and so I was kind of telling her you know I I, I don't know I, I kind of I, I I made it up like I got a. I got a map and I found what looked like a reasonable place where a cult could exist, but nobody would know. And, and I said it there and she's like, okay, because I feel like I know where this cult is. And I think, and so I think she missed the part where I said I made it up because she was convinced not only did she know where the cult was, she knew the people who were part of the cult because, you know, she recognized that these people were creepy and they're probably part of the cult. And then once I realized, yeah. And once I realized that I didn't, I didn't want to change her mind because I was actually, I felt really good that I'd convinced her unwittingly that, uh, that I'd written basically a, a nonfiction book about this cult that was in her, <laughs> in her backyard. Uh, so yeah, so that was part of it, the, the cannibal stuff, which was, you know, initially inspired by the vegetarian thing. Um, and then there was, uh, one, one incident, uh, before my wife and I were married, we were uh, dating in college. Uh, I was uh, visiting her at her parents' house. It got late. Um, so I was driving home and it was, it was late at night. And there was a, a rusty orange pickup truck driving behind me, uh, three bald guys, uh, you know, bald like I am, shaved head, uh, all wearing white t-shirts. It looked way too uniform and a little bit intimidating. Uh, and it was just late enough at night that I was feeling paranoid that, that, they were, that they were right behind me. But I'm thinking, okay, whatever. I'm driving. Somebody's going to be behind me. But it felt like they were behind me for way too long. And if I made a turn, they made a turn. And then uh, and if I saw a green light, I sped up and I felt like they sped up and I was getting more and more paranoid that these guys were going to follow me all the way home. So, uh, you know, I was I probably like five minutes from home before they finally turned somewhere else. But I was so affected by that, by, by you know, the terror. Like, you know, my imagination ran wild about all the horrible things they were going to do to me by the time they actually caught up to me. Of course, none of it happened. But I ended up writing a story about it when I was in college. And then, you know, 20 some odd years later, uh, that story ended up in the in the Dolph collection, but but the but the idea of these three guys who I felt were following me, who I was terrified they were going to do something scary to me, I, I I wanted to use that mostly because you know if it scared me, maybe maybe I can use this to to scare somebody else. So so I I, I put them in the book, but I also I needed to validate why they were bald. So it turns so I, so I made it that everybody in the cult is bald. And because, uh, you know, because their leader teaches them that uh, hair is the manifestation of evil. So everybody has ritual shavings. They shave everything off, except for the leader. His name is Daddy Marlowe. He's got hair that grows down. looks like a cape all, all the way down to the dirt. Long beard. He does that um, because, you know, he takes on, you know, the, the, the evil so his, his people don't have to. So I, I went all that way just to justify why everybody was bald. So talking about, talking about the... <laughs> the uh... Which which short story is that one, by the way? So in the collection, it's called. Actually, I think it's called the Baldies. There we go. Okay, I'll, I'll check that out next. Now, I did read your the cover story, right? So Dolph the Unicorn Killer. Dolph the Unicorn Killer. And yeah, I know you're a comic book fan. You yes, you're sir. A comic book fan. I see the wall behind you. Yes, sir. And I did notice that there are some superhero elements in that story and origin stories. 
mm-hmm. that are very familiar. I stole very liberally. Go ahead. Okay, that's. <laughs> I wanted to check that, and and I see behind you, it's it's DC, and I'm not seeing a diverse Marvel or independent uh, comics behind you as well. You're absolutely so. You're not seeing that. That the, that's an oversight. There should be technically, and you know, you have no reason to believe me except I'm an honest guy. On the other side of the camera. I, I do have one Marvel poster, but you can't see it, but you can take my word for it. I'll describe it to you. It's uh, so I, I have a series of posters. It's actually, it's for, it's uh, from an artist. Uh, well, his artist name is, uh, is a ninja bot. Uh, he's the guy that actually did the cover of Dolph the unicorn killer for me. A uh, really wonderful comic book artist. Well, comic book style artist. He doesn't draw comic books, but he's, uh, he draws, you know, he, he's like, you know, goes to Comic-Con and things of that nature, does comic book style artwork. Um, but I discovered his uh, his artwork at, at my local comic book store. Uh, really loved his style. So once Dolph was getting to a place where um, it, it was, you know, about ready to be published, um, I reached out to him to find out if he was interested in doing a doing a book cover for me. And uh, and so he was really cool. He was really interested in it. So we ended up talking on the phone. Um I'd sent him a relatively early draft of Dolph, but it was complete enough that he could kind of know just just, just the cover story, not the whole book, because you know he doesn't have time to read that whole book. Uh, but I sent, <laughs> I sent him, you know, Dolph the Unicorn Killer, uh, and, and like you, Keith, you know, he recognized very quickly, you know, a lot of the the the, the superhero inspirations, the, the origin stories that I stole very liberally from. Um, he didn't accuse me of stealing them, but but you know, I did. And um, yeah, specifically, specifically, I stole the, the Batman mythology and origin, uh, a little bit of the Flash, I think, um, probably some other stuff that I, I didn't realize I was stealing. Superman um, uh, stuff and, uh, you know, Justice League. Yeah, yeah. Idea. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the Justice League. Oh, I stole a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, <laughs> and uh, but anyway, so so he's got the series of uh, uh, posters, which is a uh, uh, they're, you know, Lucha Libre, which is, a uh, you know, Mexican wrestling. I'm a huge wrestling fan. Uh, so they're Lucha Libre posters. So they look like very old school, like wrestling posters that would be painted on a concrete wall. Nice. Uh, except instead of wrestlers, they're superheroes, but they're wearing masks like they're Lucha Libre. So one of them, it's uh, it's uh, Captain America versus Iron Man. Uh, and the poster says, you know, Guerra Civil. So it's, you know, the Civil War. Um, the, the posters are all in Spanish. Um, but yeah, I've got one that's, you know, Joker versus Batman and the Wonder Woman versus uh, Harley Quinn. But the Marvel one, Iron Man That's versus my daughter's favorite. Uh, Harley Quinn. Oh yeah, yeah. She's got good taste. Harley Quinn is great. Uh, yeah, she's, which by, she's five. Oh yeah. So she's uh, so hopefully she's maybe watching uh, like some of the uh, G-rated cartoon version, or is she watching like no. Suicide Squad. No, she's she watches the. <laughs> my wife loves that stuff, so my kids watch it with her. That's pretty great. Uh, interesting story. Uh, so uh, let me. Th- I, I believe. I might get his name wrong. I, I believe his name is Paul Dini. He was a writer. I think he created Batman, the animated series. Um, so on the Batman, the animated series, uh, he created Harley Quinn. And so, um, so she, she became the first uh, comic book villain at the very least in the Batman mythology that didn't begin in the comic books. She began in this cartoon, but was so popular that she became canon. She eventually got to comic books. And then of course uh, she's now, now she's in the movies uh, but she started in the cartoon. As far as I know, she's the only one that uh, only character that that's happened with that didn't originate in the comic books. My daughter dressed as her for Halloween too. Okay, so hopefully it was the version of her from the cartoon where she's very much clothed. She was, yes, yeah, she was clothed. <laughs> okay. You know, Although on a regular basis, she's running around here, you know. 
<laughs> on, on a side note with that, that series, that animated series was so influential that uh, uh, Mr. Freeze was a, a throwaway character up until uh, Heart of Ice that resurrected him and, uh, you know, kind of revitalized him as a, as a sympathetic villain. Yeah, absolutely. I, I haven't seen it recently, but I know exactly what episode you're talking about. Yeah, and then and then also you incorporate a lot of humor elements in into that story as well. I mean, how do you how do you mix horror and humor? Is that, I mean, I guess that's a thing. No, I, yeah. I, well, ho- hopefully, I do. It, hopefully, I do it well. But that's not it's not exactly my 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 place to. Not my place to judge, but hopefully I do it well. I, I, I think it comes from a couple of places. You know, as much as I love uh, horror, the horror genre, horror movies, horror, horror stories, um, I, I very much love, I, I love comedy, I love humor. Um, uh, so I, I guess, particularly as I started telling stories and writing stories, uh, I started to appreciate, I think there's sort of a sim- symbiotic uh, relationship between horror and humor. Uh, particularly in a horror story, um, I, I recognized in terms of uh, writing a story and pacing a story and developing a story that um, humor plays an important part. In large part, uh, it, it 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 gives the it gives the reader a break. It gives the audience a break because because uh, you know you can't well you can do whatever you want. But but when I tell stories, you know I, I don't want to. I don't want to keep the, the, the reader terrified for, for three, 300 pages at a time. So, so particularly either after maybe a particularly scary, violent, uh, ter- you know, horrifying scene, I recognize the value of, you know, lighting things up uh, either with a joke or a silly scene or, you know, you know, not even necessarily, you know, a gallows humor per se, but just recognizing that that nice reprieve to, to help them, you know, cleanse their palate, give their heart a break. And then I could slowly build up to, you know, whatever the next scare is. Now, as far as Dolph goes, that 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 story specifically, um, I knew relatively early on that it was going to be silly and it was going to be very satirical. Um, but I also uh, hoped for it to be a little bit subversive. So, you know, kind of beneath the surface, having uh, some relatively, uh, I don't know, it, interesting things and interesting commentary about uh, maybe the world or people or human nature or something like that. But on the surface, very silly, very satirical. Uh, you know, you've got, you know, Dolph, this guy who, you know, he, he, he's, a, he's a unicorn killer, but he's a superhero. And, and he believes from the bottom of his heart that unicorns are evil and that he's doing a service for the world by killing unicorns. But by the same token, uh, his primary superpower is that he can see unicorns. Nobody else can see unicorns. So from the outside looking in, he just sounds like the crazy guy who thinks unicorns exist, uh, and and you know, and he's killing them because you know he feels like he's doing the world uh, um, a service, and um, and of course you know his mythology I stole from uh, you know ninety eight percent Batman, uh, uh, <laughs> a little bit of the Flash, but you know uh, you know he, he's at the movies with with his parents. They come out. Uh, there's a guy in the alley. Uh, you know. Uh, his parents don't get murdered in the way that Batman's parents got murdered, but they, you know, but they almost did. And, you know, there was a mansion. He was rich. He was eventually an orphan, you know, all that stuff. And, 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 I, and I, I did it as intentionally as I could so that anybody who had any, even the slightest, you know, uh, slightest knowledge about Batman would, would know exactly who I was, who I was stealing from. So I, I wasn't too worried about that. Um, but, uh, 
But yes, but as, as far as humor and, and horror, um, I, I do. I, I I feel like there there is a very genuine symbiotic connection. As far as the collection goes, um, traditionally, short story collections generally have they're they're going to have maybe like one main theme. So maybe all the stories are horror. Like Stephen King, if he has a collection, you know there are going to be horror stories, or there are going to be sci-fi, or there are all going to be just a sweet literary story, whatever they are. So in my collection, again, because it came, I, I came to it by accident. I wasn't writing a theme short story collection. I was just writing stories that you know represented different interests. I, I wrote a scary story because I like that. I wrote a, a funny story because I like that. Uh, I wrote just a, a just a you know basically straightforward dramatic literary story just about people with no science fiction at all because i like that um and then you know when i put this collection of stories together the one primary thing that i think i was worried about is that they didn't have a theme so so you know the fact that you could recognize some of them are horror some of them are humor some of them are neither but hopefully they're still you know engaging stories about people so um so in terms of putting it together and and sort of trying to find a, a through line with it well frankly i don't know if i did but uh, actually the, the one thing that i did do was um, uh, all the stories intersect in one form or fashion. Um, so, so you'll, you'll, you know, as, as characters from the first story, they might appear in the third or fourth story. And yes, uh, characters are going to, you know, cross pollinate, even if it's only in the background, even, even if it's only in passing, but every story, the main through line is Dolph the Unicorn Killer uh, as a comic book. So, so every story, there's some reference of, you know, uh, you know, if you guys read the new issue of Dolph the Unicorn Killer, so as you're going through this collection, you're hearing about this comic book, you're hearing some of the storylines, and then by the time you get to the to the title story, um, you've been you've been hearing about this guy. So now you get to finally uh, engage in a story like uh, all the characters uh, in the book. So he actually does kind of become the through line of this otherwise uh, eclectic collection of you know poor comedy, literary, and you know. I was gonna say romance. I don't think there's romance in there. There might be, you know, whatever. There's love. Fuck it. There's romance. <laughs> so you you said you met your wife in college. Yeah. What, yeah. What college was that? So uh, I was so I was a student at uh, Chafee College, which is a community college in in Rancho Cucamonga, five minutes from the house I grew up in. Uh, technically, so so we did go to college together. Uh, but when we met, we worked at the at the Virgin Megastore, which uh, you know is a record store. You know, which would obviously you know you guys oh, know yeah. those 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 uh, <laughs> those are obsolete. They, they don't exist anymore. But once upon a time in 1999, when I met my wife, we worked at a record store, um, and uh, it is a beautiful love story. I, I should write about it one day. Um, but uh, but you know, I had a big crush on her. I I, th I thought she knew it. Apparently, she didn't for several months. I, I thought I was courting her. She had no idea. Because uh, that's how good I was at it, <laughs> and so uh, so she had a sort of fancy little spot in the back where she worked with like the inventory and stuff. So she had her own phone. So and you know I was I was a lowly you know cash register guy. You know I had to ring up uh, CDs and stuff when people still bought CDs. Um, so uh, yeah, every so throughout the day I would call her extension just to have an excuse to call her. Um, and again, in my mind, I'm courting her. She but again, she had no idea. So I would, I would call her in the back, but I didn't want her to think I was like bothering her. So I'd always pretend there was like a customer in front of me, and I'd be like, "Hey, there, there, there's a, there's some people in front of me. They're looking for uh, they're, they're looking for a CD. They, they don't know who it is. Um, I guess it's like uh, it's like a British a British band from from Liverpool. There's like four <laughs> guys, um, and then uh, she was like, oh, the Rolling Stones. I was like, perfect. And then I would you know 
give them the wrong information. But luckily, there was no one that was actually in front of me. Uh, so I, I would do that. And then eventually, after several months, um, I, I made my move at, at a Halloween party. Uh, and the only reason I made a move and went for a kiss with my future wife, so it's not creepy, is I thought she was on board. I thought she knew that I'd been courting her for months. I invited her to this Halloween party. <clears throat> she she knew she knew what she knew what was happening. I, I was I was trying to get her to be my girlfriend, and uh, and, and then after you know, I made my move, uh, we kissed. It was lovely, and then I found it immediately after that uh, that I caught her completely. By surprise, it was like an M Night Shyamalan movie for her because then she like reflected back on the previous several months and she saw all the clues that apparently I was trying to date her. And then uh, that was uh, <laughs> that was like the the fall of 1999. And then uh, she started going to the same school I was at. So so we did eventually go to college together for for several years. Uh, and we were together for like 15 years before we actually got married. We got married in uh, 2015. So we it'll be 21 years uh, this November. We've been married almost six years. Impressive. So when you were in school, what were you going to school for? Besides uh, being creepy with people you worked yeah, with? Yeah. So, so besides being creepy with, uh, you know, uh, uh, with, 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 with the gal that I, that I work with. And chances are she wasn't the only gal I was being creepy with. But, you know, she won the prize, which is this guy. Uh, <laughs> but I, I so, so, so the, the first couple, well, yeah, the first couple of years I was focusing on general ed because I, I really I really didn't I, I didn't know what to do um, and even though I met that wonderful teacher who put me on the road to being a writer I didn't think I could or should major in English because my only the only real understanding I had I had of being an English major was going to be just it was going to be just like all grammar and I don't know why I thought that I, I just figured that's the worst case scenario I had no interest in, in, in learning grammar any more than I had to so I, I didn't want to focus on that. So I actually tried a lot of other stuff. I took a couple of art classes. I thought maybe I'll pick that up again. I took a, I know I took a ceramics class, some studio art. I did some art history. I, I was really trying really hard to like figure out how I could maybe shoehorn my, my, my love of, you know, drawing and art. Uh, none of it quite, quite panned out, but I, but I kept enjoying writing. And so there was a, I believe it was, um, I think there was a, was there a screenwriting class? I, th I think I signed up for a screenwriting class because, again, I love movies. Um, and I thought, you know, maybe maybe that could be a thing I could do. Because in my mind, screenwriting had to be much easier than writing actual words in the book. And I wanted to avoid that as much as I could. So I, so I, I think I took a screenwriting class. I learned absolutely nothing. But the, the professor of that class, lovely, lovely man, one of those, like, really old professors who, you know, probably died a long time ago, but very sweet man. But he was uh, one of the original... Um, uh, staff writers on the Smurfs. I remember that. So that was very cool. Um, I, I learned almost nothing from him except that he wrote on the Smurfs, but he was really cool. Apparently he was friends with Stan Lee. So I loved that. So, so I learned nothing from that class, but, but I had this idea that was like, okay, well, if, if, if screenwriting is going to be a thing that works out and I had no idea if it would, but if that works out, it would probably help if I had some kind of a foundation of storytelling. So maybe I should just take like a, just like a fiction class for the purpose of having a storytelling foundation so I can write screenplays because I love movies. And so I signed up for uh, just basically just a prose fiction class, just a regular sort of, you know, class of that nature. And without meaning to, I fell in love with it. And then, you know, hmm. uh, very quickly drifted away from screenwriting and just dove headfirst into uh, writing short stories. And then um, I, I figured, I hoped I would eventually write a novel, but I didn't know 
when that would be or what it would look like. I, I didn't know what it took to be a novelist. I just knew that I, I, I loved this this form of writing. And and, even, and it was years, even when I once I got to you know, transfer into university, I uh, met a wonderful professor. His name is James Brown. He's uh, one of my mentors, one of my dear friends today, a wonderful writer. Um, and so I took a bunch of his classes because he was, you know, uh, he was really the, the 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 first and only real like genuine writer who I'd ever seen in the flesh. So, so I went to his office all the time. I, I, I hounded him. I asked him all sorts of questions. Um, and so once I was almost done with school, and I'd only been writing short stories, I kept waiting for. I, I wanted to write a novel, but I didn't know like does somebody have to ask me to write a novel? Does something happen? Is there like a do I go to a do I is there like a bat signal in the sky and then I know it's time to write a novel? Um, so, so I asked my mentor, cause I treated him like he was my Yoda. So I asked my mentor, how, how do you know when you're ready to write a novel? Cause I, and so uh, he gave me both the, 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 he told me exactly what I wanted to hear, but it was also the most terrifying thing he could tell me, which, which was, you know, the, the only way you, you know that you're ready to write a novel is you have to write a novel. And that's not what I wanted to hear. Cause I wanted to know that I, I don't want to write a novel until I know I'm ready to do it, except, you know. My Yoda told me, you only know you're ready to do it if you, if you do it. So I ended up writing what would become that novel that ended up in the, in the bottom drawer. And, um, and actually, I, 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 I did get one, I, I, I was going to say stole, it's my story, so I didn't steal them. I repurposed one character in that book that became um, one of the most popular characters in my first book that I eventually published. Uh, but the main thing I learned from writing that book, even though it was ultimately garbage, is I learned... Well, one that I could write a novel, I learned what it took to, to write a full-length novel, and then I was able to take that knowledge and write what would become my first novel, and then kept going into my my, my first five books. So you found, how long you found a mentor that really guided you through this creative process as one of your instructors. So, I mean, <laughs> he, he inspired you, I guess, right? Oh, in a, in a, in a, in a big, bad way, yeah, because... Because when I took his class, um, not not unlike when I gave up on my 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 art dreams, I had um, I, I I decided that I was giving up on the writing dream, and that was that was mostly because of the first when I transferred to university, that the first creative writing teacher I had, um, who I, I used to have a lot of bad feelings towards her, and, and you know as time goes on, I know she didn't mean it, but she basically discouraged me enough that I decided I wasn't good enough to actually pursue this. I, I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to write anymore because I almost felt silly to think that I would, that, that I ever thought that I could be a writer. So I was going to give up on this dream. And so, so I gave up on it for a semester. I just took a bunch of, you know, whatever literature classes, composition classes, everything, but creative writing, but I still had it in me. I still had this, even though in my mind, I was terrible at it. I felt it in my bones that I, I wanted to write stories. So I, I decided, let me take one more class. And, um, and really, in a lot of ways, I wanted, I wanted somebody to tell me, I wanted somebody to agree with me that I was bad at this and to give it up. And then I, then I could peacefully like walk away from it. So I said, I didn't know who he was. I signed up for his class. Um, I didn't know until I got there that he was a, he was a very, you know, a successful, respected writer. Um, he brought a couple of his books to class, so that blew my mind because, you know, I, 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 I'd never actually seen an author in the flesh. So right away, this was very exciting. That, okay, this guy does the thing that I thought I wanted to do before I decided to quit. And, and so he's, he's, he's good. He's successful. He's respected. So if he tells me not to do this shit, I, with, with, uh, with, with peace in my heart, I can walk away from it. 
Um, and so, so it was a so so we did creative writing workshops. Students would write a story. We'd sit in a circle. Everybody would read it and critique it and offer feedback. I was so anxious to find out that it was it was time to quit. Uh, I volunteered to go first, so I only had I had less than a week to write a story. And the story, actually, the story I ended up writing is the Baldies that's now in the you know memorialized in the in the best-selling award-winning collection, Dolph the Unicorn Killer, and, and other stories. <laughs> uh, and so, but I, but I wrote the story. Almost with I, you know, I realized now I very much wanted him to not like the story, and to tell him to quit. And uh, unfortunately, he loved the story. Uh, he had good feedback for it. It wasn't perfect, um, but he loved the story. Told me what he loved about it. Gave me this really excellent, laser sharp uh, uh, feedback of, of things to work on. And then he basically he just kind of gave me just a, just a kernel of hope that okay, well maybe not all is lost because I, you know, as much as I decided that you know if he told me to quit, I should quit. Because he was giving me hope, you know, maybe I'll keep going with it. And um, by the end of that class, I was, I was, my my confidence was renewed. I, I don't know, I wasn't exactly a better writer, but my confidence was back. My love was back, and, and yeah, that was the 2000 and, uh, 2002. So at this point, I've known him for 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 almost 20 years. Um, he's uh, he for my first book. He read uh, an almost final draft of it. Um, which is very generous because I mean, you know, uh, books are long and it's, it's a big investment for, for anybody to ask you to read anything. So, so I didn't ask it. I, I, I didn't, I didn't even assume, I didn't want to assume that he would, but I asked if he wouldn't mind reading it. You know, it was my first book. I wanted to get some feedback on it. Um, and just like, just like, you know, the mentor he always was gave me just, just laser sharp feedback that it was exactly what I needed to hear. I, I pretty much, rewrote almost like the second half of the book because he was spot on uh and then you know that book uh, you know i i i i i promise i feel uh well keith's not going to believe me but uh but but i i really do feel embarrassed when i when i talk about things like but but that first book won several awards including the the grand prize and the paris book festival uh, i was the number one bestseller on on amazon it was uh the number one book in the itunes uh uh, bookstore in the horror section. Uh, the author behind me—you'll know his name. His name is Stephen King. Uh, and even though, and, you know, it was—it was fleeting. I was probably on there for five minutes. But, um, uh, but I, I like to imagine that as, as exciting as it was for me to see that my first novel, you know, number one, Stephen King, number two. I like to imagine that uh, there was a point where Stephen King saw that list, and he was like, "Who the fuck is Martin Luther King?" <laughs> okay, I, I, I have I two questions. Two questions. Yeah. One: How long did it take to write the novel? Okay, which not um, which one? The first one, or first one, or Dorf, Dolph, Dolph, no. <laughs> Dolph. How no, dare you, sir? That's short story, sir. The novel, the first one. So the first novel, uh, I wrote it. So uh, I wrote it over the course of about five years. I started it my last year of graduate school, so that was right around two thousand and five. I started it. I finished it right around two thousand and ten. But I wasn't writing every day for five years. I was finishing school. Um, I started. Uh, I started uh, teaching. I was a. I was a college professor for what ended up being ten years. So I started my teaching career. So I was sort of working on this book in between trying to do these other things, finish school, learn how to be a college professor. So I, I wrote it over the course of five years. But if you were going to condense all the writing time, uh, I would, I, it's probably not unreasonable to say it's maybe like two years of actual writing. But you know, five years. All right. So next, you you won the awards. 
you, you started to get some recognition, right? So mm -hmm. how are you using that to build a brand for yourself? Because I'm sure that turns into the teaching gigs and so forth and so on. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah. So, so with the so it, it happened in a in a couple of ways. So when when the book first came out, and you know, it, it, I'm, I'm a first time novelist, absolute nobody, completely anonymous. Nobody knows who I am on Amazon or anywhere else. So it was it was uh, it was pushing a boulder uphill just to get anybody to pay attention to the fact that I had a book at all. Um, I had a couple of strokes of luck. The first was uh, actually the the cover, the book cover for my first book. Um, I, so I was, I, you know, I finished the book while I was, uh, while I was still teaching and, um, I didn't know what to do for a book cover. So I was thinking, well, you know, may, maybe, uh, you know, I've, I'm, I, I work at a college, how hard can, maybe I, maybe I can find like, just like an art student, uh, just somebody who's pretty okay at it. Maybe they could put something together for me. And so I mentioned this to one of my students who had taken, he'd taken a few of my classes. And so, you know, so he and I, we, we had a good rapport. And so he's like, oh, I know, I know, I know an artist. I, I could uh, maybe, maybe, maybe he'll be interested. I was like, oh, that's fantastic. I'm assuming that it's like he's got this, uh, you know, one of his friends is an art student. So he said, oh, so I talked, I, I talked to the artist. He said he's interested. I reached out to him. I gave me his phone number. Uh, so, so, so we talk on the phone. Well, actually, before we even talk on the phone, he, he tells me that he's, uh, he's, he's currently touring through Europe. But when he's back to the States that, that we should talk. And so I'm thinking, wow, that's amazing. This guy, he's, he's such a good artist. He's torn through Europe. This, I, I think I hit the jackpot. It turns out that he was actually, uh, he, was a, he was a musician. He was a founding member of a band called Circus Survive, who I, I'd never heard of them. <clears throat> but, but I learned that they, uh, they're a very big deal, particularly in sort of the indie rock scene. So, so I had no idea. I was talking to, uh, you know, a, a rock star. I thought I was talking basically to a college student who was doing some artwork. Um, he agreed to do my, my book cover uh, primarily because he was also on the side. He was painting and doing watercolors and it was, it was sort of a, uh, a side passion for him. And he liked the idea of, he liked the idea of doing a book cover uh, because he'd never done it before. Nobody ever asked him. So he did my book cover, didn't ask for a penny. He was just happy to do it. And because he's, um, you know, part of a band who's a big deal, they have a huge uh, social media uh, presence. When the book came out, <clears throat> um, he was, uh, kind enough uh, to, uh, to to reference uh, to mention the book on their Facebook page and on their on their Twitter page. So in one fell swoop, um, a, a huge number of people that I otherwise would not have access to now knew about my book. So so right away that increased uh, book sales, which uh, which beyond you know uh, any royalties, that also got started to give me some some exposure, and that exposure started to lead to you know to getting some reviews, uh, and that started to, to you know give me some traction, um, and then you know then on top of that, um, I would eventually win you know my my first big literary prize, which was uh, you know the the grand prize in the in the Paris Book Festival, so those two things very much came together, and I was I was able to use well. Beyond his generosity of you know introducing me to his audience, just the the just being introduced to that number of people, winning the award, uh, the book was getting really good reviews. I was able to use all these things, and um, in, a, in a very DIY fashion, I reached out to everybody: book bloggers, reviewers, bookstores, colleges, uh, anybody I could you know uh, uh, get to you know acknowledge me. 
and uh, little by little, you know, the notoriety of the award and the book and, you know, the, the bestseller status, um, I got to a point where particularly in the Inland Empire where, you know, where I, where I lived, I had established myself to where, you know, um, colleges, uh, high schools, libraries, they would, they would invite me down, give a talk, do a book signing. Um, I was getting invited, invited to talk on, uh, on panels. Uh, maybe doing doing podcasts, and so it was it was um, it was fantastic. And uh, and you know to, to sort of answer your question, um, I, I I just I, I just hustled as much as I could. Once I recognized the the good fortune I had in terms of the awards and the bestseller status, and you know whatever attention I had, I didn't know how long it was going to last. So that's where I began that grind. So you of, took you know, advantage of it when it was there for for as long as I could. Yeah, I wrote it, and you know expected it to go away, so I just wrote it for as long as I could. Yeah, and networked. <clears throat> the bejesus what's that out of it. and networked the bejesus <laughs> out of it oh yeah absolutely never get the bejesus out of it uh yeah and and, and and my mom thank goodness uh she she hustles the book even more than i do so you know she'll i'll you know she'll be at, at costco you know sampling a, a smoothie and uh and whoever you know she'll tell the person you know giving out the samples you know my, my son's an author do you, do you like horror novels he's very good he's about cannibals but it's not you know it's not that <laughs> skip. i think you, you know she's great <laughs> yeah. By the way, I, I'm looking. I'm looking at the camera. I realize I look like I'm in the uh, witness protection program. I apologize about that. Oh, I'm, I'm still funny. thinking about your mother in Costco and talking about cannibalism. <laughs> Picturing the people serving the little treats at Costco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, me too. But you know, she's you know she's she's uh yeah she's my she's my uh, sort of you know one woman uh, publicity team. She's that's awesome. She's great. Yeah, that is completely awesome. But. Uh, the branding you're doing and the hustling, I, I, that's what I think people don't realize is, or I know you're teaching now, so let's, let's tra transition there that you're, you're dealing with students and you're dealing with mentoring, you know, like, like you had the, yeah, the person absolutely. who helped you. So as you're mentoring people, are you explaining the, the extreme amount of effort that goes into making something like this happen? Uh, 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 yes and no. So, um, on the one hand, uh, the, the, the student, the, the, the classes I was teaching, so they were, it was, they were composition classes. So I wasn't doing, I wasn't teaching creative writing, even though I would have loved to. Um, so, so the, the college students that I taught on a day-to-day -day basis, they were, I was just teaching basic, you know, how to write basic, you know, composition essays. But when I would do, uh, I would get invited to say to, to like a, a writer's retreat or a writer's weekend to be a guest author to talk about writing. So when I had, you know, those students in front of me, absolutely. I absolutely talked about, you know, um, and, you know, and it wasn't, the, I, I didn't lead with it because, you know, the, the last thing I, I would want to do is extinguish anybody's fire by, by letting them know this is really fucking hard. But, you know, once, once I recognized that there was something they were serious about, then you know, I actually I did not mind at all talking to him uh, about the hustle, uh, you know, the, the work that that I put into it in terms of you know, and, and again, uh, I worked really hard, but I'm completely aware of different strokes of luck that that I couldn't have planned for. But by the same token, you know, once those strokes of luck came along, I had done the work ahead of time that I was I was in a good position to to, to benefit from them. Um, so, so I would definitely share that with you know, with, with students, and and uh, and I'm and I'm always uh, even now anybody that I meet, whether it's in person or or on on Twitter, anywhere, um, if they show an interest, I probably give them more information than they're looking for, just because I, I remembered, 
how desperately I wanted information, especially before I met my mentor and who would ultimately help me meet, you know, network and meet other folks. But also in terms of branding, and, and I realized I forgot to mention this. So my first book, you know, is a horror novel. And as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of sort of by, I didn't realize it was a horror novel. But once I did recognize that, I saw a value and okay, let me market this as a horror novel, brand it as a horror novel, and kind of brand myself a little bit as a horror author, even though I didn't see myself necessarily as a horror author. And so when the book came out, and it was, again, my first novel, I, I didn't have high expectations, was a lot more successful than I expected. I actually got a little bit nervous, both in terms of branding, because it's a, it's, it's a horror novel. It's now all of a sudden, um, everything that I'm doing, anytime there's a book review, anytime I do an interview, it's, you know, horror author, Martin Lestraps, which is cool, except I had other, I had other stories I wanted to write, and they weren't horror stories. Um, and so I was really nervous about, you know, getting cornered into this one specific brand of, of, uh, of writing. My next three books, they, they were vampire. It was a vampire trilogy, which I wanted to write. And it was, it was still sort of on that brand. And I was very conscious of, okay, again, let me take advantage of the success of this book. So I, I don't want to stray too far away and write something that's not completely horror. Um, but then ultimately uh, the, you know, the, the, the fifth book, which, which was Dolph, that was the first real genuine time that I, broke away from just horror and there's horror stories in there but it was the first time that really i started to present myself also as you know i can do some stuff that's funny i can do some stuff that's literary it's also horror um which which by the way is that a good idea i have no idea it, it might it might be a better idea to stick with with the, in terms of branding to stick with you know marketing wise maybe it'd been smart to stick with horror but also in terms of being a storyteller and, and the, the sort of storyteller i wanted to be i i just i didn't want to I was very, I was very worried about cornering myself into one type of story. So, uh, honestly, it, it might be, it might be a bad branding uh, technique, but that's sort of a, what I'm trying right now. Oh, branding's overrated, at least in my isn't opinion. it? I, I, I want that to be true. So I can agree with you, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> He's saying that because it's a passion of mine. So, oh, it's, it's a pain in my butt. By which I mean, branding is so important, and it's key to really so much success, especially as an that's author. All I'm saying. That's really it. <laughs> it seems to be a, a reoccurring theme on, on the show here that the effort that goes into succeeding in a career, we, we've been talking to um, Foley artists or Foley mixers and TV awesome. producers, and they're talking about the extreme amount of effort that somebody has to put into to work in those fields and that you have to take on whatever gigs that come your way and you, you have to just show up and have a positive attitude at all times, yeah. be willing to do everything it takes, be willing to work long, hard hours. So it's always interesting to see how somebody's doing it and what it takes to get to that point. And again, like you said, you're, you had a mentor and now you get the opportunity to, to help others. Yeah. It, it's, it's really one of my great prep. Uh, well, privileges it's also a pleasure uh anytime i have an opportunity to, to mentor anybody it's i i it, it's it's a joy but i take it very seriously because especially again I, I have very clear memories of being you know 18 19 20 years old i wanted to be a writer but i had no idea what that meant i hadn't i had not a clue what that looked like and even when i when i wrote my first short story whatever it was i'm sure it was terrible but whatever it was i wrote it and then i then i was like what do I do with this? I have not a clue. I, I, I wrote a story. I have not a clue what to do with this. 
I, I was just, I was desperate for information, just, just good, clear information. So, um, so when I finally met that writer, he gave me just like clear ideas of like, oh, well, you know, um, buy, buy this book, buy this manual, talk to that person, go to this writer's retreat. Um, you know, how, how do you get a book published? Well, you know, you need, you know, it's, it's a good idea if you, if you have an agent. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, how do you get an agent? You know, how do you find an, you know, all these things just, I was so grateful to finally get information that, you know, now that I'm in a position where, you know, over, over 20 years, I've, I've collected a lot of information. It's, it's one of my great pleasures to, to give back. And again, that's, you know, when, when somebody asks me a question, I probably give them more information than they want just because I, I, I think because I'm, I'm, I'm I, I picture that that young version of myself and I want to tell them everything I wish somebody would have told me and, you know, whatever, if they retain 10% of it, that's, that's cool. And, and even in terms of publishing. So I, so the, uh, so, so basically, uh, there's, there, you know, there's you know, traditional publishing and you know, self-publishing or independent publishing, and so I tried very, very, very hard to be a traditionally pu- published author, which is get a literary agent, uh, get signed to you know to some, uh, you know, one of one of the big five, you know, uh, book publishers, and if not one of the big five, I'll take uh, any, any one of the middle ones. And once they didn't want me, I'll take one of the small ones. And once they didn't want me, I'll take whoever wants me. And, and none of them wanted me. So, so I, I was at a crossroads where I'd written this book, this this cannibal novel. Uh, in my heart, I, I really genuinely felt like I had done something good. That I might have, I might have done something special. But I couldn't. I couldn't get anybody else to to to, to agree with me. So so I, I was at a crossroads, and I and I I didn't want to publish it myself in large part because business wise. Uh, within the writers community, the writing and publishing industry, um, especially you know 10, 15 years ago, there was a very, very big stigma against uh, self-published authors. Right. It doesn't it not only does it not exist today, it's almost like the, it's, 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 you're cool if you're self-publishing today. You were not cool if you were self-publishing you know 10, 15 years ago. And because you know, the stigma was if you were any good, Somebody will take you eventually, and if you publish it yourself, it's because you know you're you're just not that good. And I was not only was I aware of that stigma, um, I had people around me, including my mentor, who absolutely meant well. Uh, anytime I mentioned the idea of publishing the book myself, he would always talk me down and say, "You know, you're you're talented. This is a good book. Um, just keep plugging away. Some some somebody's going to pick this book up. You know, you don't you don't want to publish it yourself because he was way more old school than I was. So he was. He, he was more concerned about my career and then me being stigmatized as a, you know, as, as an indie author, self-published author. So anyway, I had this book, nobody wanted it. So I figured, okay, I could spend the next 10 years trying to get somebody to, to publish this book. Or I could just take my chances, roll the dice and, and you know, uh, publish it myself. And so, um, so once I made the decision to do that, which was terrifying, by the way, because again, I felt like I was throwing it all away. Uh, in, any credibility I might have possibly have gotten, I was throwing it all away to publish this book myself, and uh, and, and publishing it myself. Like I, it was this whole other learning curve of curve of how do you publish a book? You, you know, once once I print the book off of my computer, what do I do with this? I'm not publishing a stack of paper. How do I get it right. designed? How do I get a You're book? Not cover? taking it to Kinkos. Absolutely. How, how do you how do you get it in, in Amazon? How do you get a how do you get it printed? How do you get an ebook? There's all this information. That again, I found it was it was almost like starting over. Where do I get this information? And so then, over the years, of, you know, so you know now now I've published five books. I published them all independently, which is part of the reason I take so much pride in you know uh, being a bestseller, being an award winner. It's not just because it represents the books I've written, 
but because you know I've I've you know I, I did it myself, and, and you know, and it wasn't it wasn't such a noble decision that you know I forced I I, I forsaked traditional publishing. I desperately wanted to be accepted by them. Right, but now but that they, you're now that you're an award winner and you have all yeah. that behind you, now yeah. people want to publish you, and now you're doing it yourself, and you don't need them. Absolutely, that, that's it, it, it's the best feeling, <laughs> and uh, it's a, the the book I'm work, working on right now. Uh, I'm I I, I have. I've been thinking a lot about um, testing the waters again. Just, just kind of you say. At this point, I've got the, I've got the five books under my belt. They've all done well. Uh, they've won awards. Uh, they've been bestsellers. Um, I have people who like the writing that I'm doing. So, so I, there's, I'm tempted to test the waters. But then there's a part of me that, I'm, again, talking about branding. There's a part of me that feels like you know, uh, part part of my part of my Part of my branding narrative is I'm the guy who bet on himself and published independently, and now he's successful. I almost feel like I would be disappointing somebody if I if I went the other way and had a book published by a by a corporate book company. Um, and again, it's, saying it out loud, it feels dumb, but these are, it's it's a genuine well, concern I have. People like, think about yeah, you know, am I gonna am I gonna let down people who? watch what I'm doing, love what I'm doing, appreciate what I'm doing, have engaged and, you know, with, with, with my, with one, with my branding narrative of, you know, the, 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 the indie author who could, and then, you know, sold out to, to, to a, to a book company, but then by the same well, token, that's I, the I, mark I, of an artist. Right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. At some point you got to sell out, right? Oh <laughs> make yeah. A buck. No, definitely so. God damn but it. It'd be nice to make a buck. Do, when you do sell out, yeah, you get it all up front. You know, get the big oh. paycheck up front. Don't, don't, yeah. Absolutely. Don't get the big paycheck no up front. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, that's, uh, that's important. Keith's that is important. not jaded at all. No, not even a little uh, bit. No, not at all. <laughs> so, so what is next? So, uh, so the, the novel that I'm currently working on, uh, it is, it's, uh, I, I call it my circus novel. So it's a novel set in the circus. It's it's a little bit of sci-fi, but it's not a you know it's not like science fiction. It's more fantasy. Actually, it's a little bit of fantasy. So the story is about this guy. He's a college professor, and uh, he he's a college professor. You know, grew up. He loved the circus, uh, but he has no talent or ability to be in the circus. So you know, you know, uh, he ended up becoming an English professor. Uh, a part of the book was me sort of very much exercising a lot of the stuff that I hated about college teaching. So I put him into this teacher. Uh, but in the big, in the very beginning of the book, the first chapter of the book, uh, he has a uh, an accident while he's cooking in his kitchen and accidentally lights himself completely on fire, head to toe. Um, and so the first chapter kind of goes where you know he assumes that he's dying, his life is kind of flashing before his eyes. And when the chapter is over and he's put, he, he's not on fire anymore. He realizes he's completely unharmed. He has no idea why he was completely engulfed. He should be, if not dead, totally, totally charred. He's completely unharmed. So he realizes purely by accident that he's, he's, uh, he's fireproof. And so, so through, the, through the course of the story, he takes this fireproof ability. And instead of doing something noble with it, like maybe being a firefighter or something, he joins the circus and does a fire act. Um, and then so it becomes a story about him traveling with the circus, uh, doing this fire act. Uh, meeting some interesting characters, and then sort of you know, eventually learning that there's some sort of dark, nefarious forces that are part of the circus um, that he wasn't aware of ahead of time. And you know, uh, how's he going to have? You know, how's he going to get? Can he get out of it? And if he does, can he get out of it uh, alive? Um, but so it's a, it's a, but but it's not a horror novel. It's sort of 
fun, uh, silly, but they'll, they'll be, it's probably gonna be the closest thing to, to the Dolph collection in that I feel like it's gonna encompass everything. There's gonna be some scary elements, some funny elements, some romance, yeah. uh, but ultimately it's, it's, my, it's my circus novel. It's called Grover Wilcox Goes to the Circus. Um, I'm, I'm very excited. I don't know when it's gonna be done, but I'm very excited about it, making really great progress on it. Yeah, and the other thing, awesome. by the way, is uh, the exciting thing about being an indie publisher is that I have the, uh, I, I, I can write this book and I can be excited about it. And part of the excitement is I know that when it's done, it's going to get published. Where, you know, <laughs> particularly with my first book, I, you know, I, I was writing this book. Nobody asked for it. Nobody asked me to write this book. I had no idea what was going to happen with it. And so I had so many moments where I, I would be sitting in front of the computer and just realize, what am I doing? Nobody asked for this book. Well, it's I'll not tell going you, if, it's, if it's anything like Dolph, then uh, it's it won't be predictable. Let's let's put it that way. <laughs> I appreciate that. From <laughs> what I did read, I, I couldn't read the endings. I, I I wasn't expecting them, and that's I always <laughs> like that kind of stuff because a lot of you know books on audio that you know we're on long road trips we listen to. It's like oh yeah, the end of the story, and I'm like yeah okay, yeah seen that yeah, okay yeah sure. Oh yeah, it's the butler, you know that kind of stuff. But yeah, <laughs> uh, but Dolph, uh, it 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 didn't do that. And, it's uh, not predictable really, at really all. Like that, man. You guys are awesome. I appreciate that. I can tell you that uh, I so I, I outline all my stories, but I, but I don't stick to them religiously. I just I give myself a nice roadmap, so I do know where the intended ending of this circus book is, and uh, I, I don't think you'll be disappointed. You won't see it coming. That's oh, nice. Excellent. All right. Well, where can we find these books? So I, I would say that, uh, that the easiest place to find them is at the world's favorite uh, bookstore, Amazon.com. Uh, you can also find them on barnesandnoble.com. You can buy them both in print. You can also buy them in an ebook form. Um, if if you were so inclined to go to a book and a brick and mortar store, which actually I had, I, not only was Barnes and Noble struggling before the pandemic, I have no idea how it's doing during the pandemic. But if you wanted to go to Barnes and Noble, uh, because I'm an indie author and I'm not nearly as famous as Stephen King, my book won't be on the shelf. But although, although it, it, you are ahead of him on the charts, right? And yeah, and he's still trying to figure out who I am. Uh, I am in the I, I'm in the whatever the, the the big Universal Book System is. So you could go to a Barnes and Noble or any any place that sells books, and they get special order for you if you wanted to. But I mean, at this point, if you're gonna Get a book special order to Barnes and Noble. You probably just as soon buy it on uh, on Amazon.com. Is, is, is Keith holding up the book? Look at you. He, he is feels, definitely holding it up. Feels good. You didn't use cheap paper. No, no. Enough to read. So yeah, I, I'm telling I you. See, I, I take I, I take a lot of pride in being a, an independent publisher. And part of the pride is, you know, I, it was very important to me to produce books that if you put my book next to a book that was published by a traditional author, publisher, you wouldn't know the difference. That was very important to me. What printer did you use? So I work with a with a, with a printer. They, they're both my printer and my distributor. They're called Lightning Source. So um, they, they 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 do the print copy of the books. They also distribute the the, the print books to uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and several books that I books bookstores that I've never actually heard of, but they're available there. And they they use a, te- a technology called print on demand, which is you could probably figure out what it means. Print on demand was just a godsend for an independent publisher because. Uh, you know, print on demand, it literally means that, you know, you can go on Amazon, buy my book. The copy of the book, the book that you buy doesn't exist until you buy it. When, when you buy it, Lightning Source prints one copy of that book, they fold it up and they send it to you. 
before that, uh, you know, before print on demand, it was just the offset printers. And that was, that was expensive as hell because, you know, just to justify plugging in an offset printer, you had to print, you know, 750 copies of the book, which means as the indie author, you had to buy, you know, 800 copies of your book and then hope that you sold those books. And you never did. They became, you know, doorstops. They became things that you gave away at garage sales. So print on demand was an absolute godsend. So lightning sources who I've been using since my first book, there's a lot there's there's a lot of companies who do it now but they were if they weren't the first one they were the first sort of uh major first major first major one yeah and so so i so i hooked up with them and you know uh i'm you know i'm pretty loyal so there's other companies but you know i kind of stick with them definitely i can't wait for the uh classic leather bound edition so yeah yeah me too Me too. So what, what kind of advice do you have for the, the up-and-coming authors? So for, for any up-and-coming authors, so, so the first bit of advice I can give them, uh, so I'll assume that, uh, that, that they're, well, I'll, I'll assume they're good writers and they, and they know that this is the path that they want to be on. Um, one thing I would tell them is, as far as the story that you're telling, be, be true to yourself, be true to your imagination, be true to your sensibilities, write the stuff that you absolutely love, uh, you know, write the books that, you know, uh, that don't exist, but you wish they existed, write the books that you would love to read, um, because those are going to become the best stories, uh, that, that those are going to be, you know, the best stories that you can possibly write, and the, the reason I would even share that advice is because um, so many, so many aspiring authors, and it's not, it, it's not a fallacy in logic, but, you know, they're going to look at, you know, well, what are the trends? What's selling? What, what's big? What, what's on the New York Times bestseller list? Let me write to that. And what you're going to end up doing is writing a book that you're not passionate about because you're chasing a trend that by the time you finish that book, that trend's already over. And now you've got a book that nobody wants because, you know, whatever. So just write, the, you know, like, like uh, nobody, I promise you, absolutely nobody was asking for a book about a unicorn killer. But that was a story that I was excited to write when I wrote it. So I wrote that story and I just trusted that, you know, I'll, I'll finish the book. I'll put it out there. And if there's an audience for it, you know, they'll find it. But I knew that if I'm writing the stuff that, that, that I'm amused by, that, 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 that's, you know, um, genuine to my sensibilities, those are going to be the best stories I can write. Beyond that, I would tell them, you know, um, you got a lot of options, which is great as far as publishing. There is traditional publishing, which is a tough road, but not impossible. But there's also independent publishing, which is also a tough road, but it's infinitely more possible because, you know, you get to take your writing career into your own hands, but it's also a lot of work. And so, you know, so I, I would definitely tell them, um, n- know how much work goes into both, but especially if you see independent publishing, self-publishing, there's a lot of work that goes into it. And if you're not, if, if you don't have it in you to do that work, your book is going to get swallowed up on Amazon. Cause I mean, there's literally at any given time, four or 5 million books on Amazon, probably more to get attention on Amazon. It's like screaming in the grand Canyon. The fact, the fact that I had any success at all, I consider myself so goddamn lucky because half the time, I don't know how I did it. Um, but I, but I know I was willing to work and I know I had the fire in my belly to do that hard work. If you don't think you can do that, I would steer you towards traditional publishing. Cause even though it's a tough road, if you cross the finish line, you're gonna have an agent, you're gonna have a publisher, you're gonna people that can do that work for you. So, so I would tell them, you know, write the stories that, that, that you're passionate about. Don't worry about trends, and think about the difference between traditional and indie. Um, they're both totally viable, but you know, uh, but kind of recognize which one you think fits, 
and then you throw yourself into it. It's awesome. And what what they don't understand is it, you mentioned how hard it is in both the traditional route as well as the self-publishing route. Yeah. But even on the self-publishing route, you're talking about your your book cover. You're, yeah. so you have to d- deal with graphic design. You have to deal with the layout of the book. You have Absolutely. To, I mean, there's so many other things involved that you're not aware of if you're just thinking about writing. There really so, is. Yeah. And, and for somebody like me, like I love um, – I love being creative. I love having my fingers and everything. I love having a say in everything. So, so as an indie as an indie publisher, I love the fact that I can go to my local comic book shop, see some cool artwork. I like that guy's style. Let me reach out to him. Hey, do you do my book cover? Where you know, if that's traditionally published, uh, you know they're going to they, they're going to do that stuff in house. I'm probably not going to get a say. In a lot of cases, I, I I don't even get to pick my my book title. I might start with the title. But they're going to decide what this book should, could be should be called because they've got people who know Sounds this is like what's going to sound better. You know, <laughs> I, I bet there's a, I'm sure there's a lot of similarities. So I love that I get to control all that other stuff for better or for worse. I, I love being a, being in control of that stuff. And and again, you know, as a piece of advice, if if you know that you're not into that, then yeah, maybe you know, maybe go the traditional route if you like the idea of controlling things like finding you know finding an artist. Um, having some say in the in the in the interior design of the book, you know, uh, indie publishing is is great for that. I love that. Well, very cool, Martin. Sir, it's been great having you on the show. It's been my absolute pleasure. I appreciate it, guys. Well, thank you very much, Keith, sir, and Martin. I can't wait for number six, man. You have a good night. I appreciate that, Keith. And you know what? I'm going to give you a special signed copy just because I, I want you to feel uh, morally obligated to read it from beginning to end. <laughs> morally obligated. Wow. Yeah, or, right. or, or, or guiltily obligated, whichever. Whichever one. And the thing is, I want you to feel forced to read it. I don't want it to be joyful. Okay. I want it to be purely motivated by guilt. That, sound, <laughs> that sounds like a deal. <laughs> sounds like my wife. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Martin, thank you very much. We appreciate it. You guys are the best. I really appreciate it. Have a good night. You too. How do you like them apples? (laughs) I got a number.